I don't know what the, this is, but I'm, I'm not ready for it. I'm not ready for this conference. I'm not ready for what God might teach me. I'm not ready to take on a new year. I'm not ready for this challenge that I know awaits me. I am not ready for this. I retreated. I retreated in a crowded conference and got alone. And it was some of the hardest um, first few minutes. Because when you get alone, and we do everything we can to not be alone, right? Alone with no noise, no diversion or distraction. It's just really painful, especially those first few little bits. And I, my prayer was not one of eloquence. It was just a simple prayer of, Lord, I'm a losing heart. I'm not ready for this. No no brand new release of jock jams can get me ready for anything. And I knew that I needed spiritual touch. I needed something in my life. And crowded loneliness has a way of speaking to extroverts among us. And I was so close to losing heart. Since that can be true for some of you. Thus, this morning, this sermon but not losing heart. The heart is talked about a lot, right? Poets and philosophers and preachers talk about it all the time. Uh, years ago, read John Eldridge's book, Wild and Heart, and in the opening chapter, he talks about the different idioms or expressions that we have for a heart. If someone uh, is cold, we can say they have a heart of stone. We can say somebody has a hard heart, or if they're really sad, they have a heavy heart. You can bear your heart to a close friend, and that same close friend can break your heart. A lover or life itself can break your heart. That heart, that thing pumping inside of you, it can be captured, it can be won, it can be stolen. When you were a little kid, you probably said, I crossed my heart. When you were a sassy little kid, you looked at someone and said, eat your heart out. When you left home, I guarantee you somebody said to you, follow your heart. You can put your heart into something. You can pour your heart out. That pumping organ inside of you, it can melt. It can open. It can leap. It can sink. You can wear it on your sleeve. I get accused of that a lot of times. Bruce Springsteen, the boss, saying, everybody's got a hungry heart. Elvis Presley sang about heartbreak hotel. Tom Petty had a song about the heart. Don't go, don't go breaking my heart. Is that right? No, what was his? Tom Petty and Stevie Nicks. Don't drag, stop dragging my heart around. That's it. Stop dragging my heart around. Billy Cyrus, achy, breaky heart. Elton John and Kiki D, don't go breaking my heart. We sang that as new events. Remember around the house, I did Elton, you did Kiki D. Of course, there's the best song ever about the heart. Bonnie Tyler, you know it? A total eclipse of the heart. We sing and say things about our heart, but far more important than any idioms or expressions or songs, it's Scripture. In fact, the ancient Hebrews knew a lot even before the era of cardiologists. And they knew that you could press a couple of fingers up against your wrist and you could feel a bead and you could do it in the neck and other areas of your body, but nowhere like this when you could feel something pumping and they knew that the heart was the source and the center from which all else of life flows. 
Proverbs chapter 3, trust in the Lord what? with all your heart. Proverbs 4, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. The psalmist in Psalm 119, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God. Psalm 34, the Lord is near to those who are brokenhearted. Psalm 51, David prayed after his sin with Bathsheba, created me a clean heart. Psalm 73, though my heart and my flesh may fail, the Lord is the strength of my heart and He's my portion forever. The 139th Psalm, we preached it not long ago, search me, O God, and know my anxious thoughts deep in my heart. Jesus said, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. In the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever, He said, blessed are the pure in heart. He talked about the religious people who, he said this, they honor me with their lips, with their heart. It's far from me. In John 14, he tells the disciples in the midst of feeling troubled, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Going back a bit, I love how the ancient Hebrews understood the heart and expressed it. In Proverbs chapter 14, it says some really brilliant things about your heart and mind. It says this, that even in laughter, even in laughter, the heart may ache. Now, what we're learning more and more is how true that is. The scripture so long ago gives us the non-dual nature of the heart. Do you have room in life for paradox and for contradiction? That there can be things that are the the, it's, one writer calls it the mingling of opposites. You can be happy and you can be sad all at the same time. If I ask you this morning to take out a piece of paper and a pen and we play music and we let you reflect and you had a few minutes to write how you're doing, what would you say? I bet each of you would write something that you're happy about. And you could write something that you're sad about. Or something you're angry about. In my own life, there's much that has caused me happiness. Somebody yesterday, when I was writing this sermon, putting the final touches on it, they sent me a picture. Did you see this? Of the gorilla taking a bath in the little swimming pool singing the maniac. Anybody see that? I mean, I should, I should have a clip. I figured you all saw it. it. It went viral. But, like, that makes me happy to see a gorilla like Chris Farley and Tommy Boy at the gas station dancing to maniac in a little kid swimming pool. That, that makes my heart happy. And I'm happy for a gorilla that dances to maniac. And I'm happy for a friend that would send me that video. There are things that I'm happy about. I can think of my kids and I can see how they're growing and how they're expressing themselves. And one of my kids, I, I won't say her name, but she came into the living room last night and sat down next to me and she let me tickle her arm and talk to her. And that, maybe not her, but it made me happy. And my heart today is sad because I spent time with a friend this weekend whose own child is doing some very destructive behaviors. And it really, it's just sad. And my heart is angry about one injustice in particular. About one that would not take the high road but the low road. That would choose gossip to separate friends. And it makes my heart angry. I've got to give that to him. But it makes my heart angry. I've got to trust him with that. But there's this non-dual nature. Even what, what Proverbs 14 say, even in laughter, the heart may ache. One more time. Even in laughter, the heart may ache. And later in Proverbs 14, that was verse 13 and verse 30, it says that a heart at peace gives life to the body. 
If you're a physician and you know about stress and the toll that it takes, you can give a hearty amen right now. You know what I'm talking about. Proverbs is true. Proverbs 14, 30. A hearty peace gives life to the body. The ancient writers knew that mind and body, soul and spirit were interconnected. And now we're learning that with modern medicine and science more than ever before. A hearty peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. I love when I say that passage, I like to go down and often envy rots the bones. There's just something about that. What, what scripture is saying there? What will happen to your heart if you're envying? If you want somebody else's life, that is lethal. The rabbis of old, as they grasped the Ten Commandments, they talked about how the first nine are seen. You can see the first nine, like do not kill we can see if you kill, unless you're good at hiding the bodies, right? If you, you commit a crime and there's, there's that, right? You're, you're killing or you're not killing. That's, that's visible. But the last commandment, that do not covet, is an unseen one. And they had this, this idea, this teaching, that if you live those first nine, the last one will be true. You won't want someone else's life. Even in laughter... The heart may ache. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. We're in this series in Acts. And in the book of Acts, it's the first 30 years of the church. It's the heart of the church as it gets started. In Acts chapter 2, we preached this in, the, in week 2. But it says that as Peter stood up and preached, remember Peter, Peter that had fallen, that had denied Jesus, and that Jesus had given grace to. Peter was first to say, "Tonight, I, last night I took an L, but tonight I bounced back. And Peter was able to bounce back. And he saw the grace of God, and he preaches this sermon, this unlikely person. And he preaches this sermon, and the church saw 3,000 people saved. And it says that they were, it uses this great expression, it says that the people were cut to the heart. It's what I am now praying for our church. It's a prayer that hopefully I don't, I don't just throw it up late Saturday night or when I'm on my knees Sunday morning, but it's something that I express from my heart that God would, whether we're in the sanctuary or we run to the gym at the last minute, but no matter where we worship, no matter what's happening, that hearts would be cut, that you if you offer him a willing heart, that you would be cut to the heart. That repentance would happen in your life. And it says in Acts 4 that all the believers were one in heart. Look at this expression. There's a woman in Acts 16 named Lydia. Lydia is a wealthy woman. Very good at what she does. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Acts is a story of God working in the deepest part of people. But not everybody gets there. Acts 28, verse 27, the last chapter, one of the last verses in the last chapter gives us a sobriety check. For this people's heart, it has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. God wants to do His deepest work in you, a work of the heart. Today I want us to read Acts chapter 12. If you have a Bible, turn there super fast. I'm not going to give you much time. I'm going to put the verses up. I'm going to read Acts 12, 1 through 17. 
Ready? About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church and killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But here we go. This is our verse of the day. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people, that all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter out of, was out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. That sounds anticlimactic at the end, but trust me, it's not as Acts unfurls. And so in Acts, we're looking at this ragged edge realism of what of the work that God chose to do in the first 30 years of the church. There was dreams and visions, signs and wonders, Miracles and all, but there was difficulty and persecution. There was martyrdom. There was oftentimes trouble that lied ahead. We see, I see as I've studied a repeating cycle in Acts. A repeating cycle that uh, if I chose three words, it would be this. It would be crisis, triumph, advancement. I want you to see this if you read this book on your own. Crisis, Triumph and advancement. Crisis, just something that the people weren't hoping for, that they weren't expecting, and out of nowhere, they have a challenge. It happens to the church. It happened this weekend to this church. There was a team of several really smart guys in the boiler system with the air condition all weekend. We had a big wedding here yesterday. The experts were around doing all they could for the air condition. I was just praying and praying that God would lead them and help them to get this air condition fixed. It looks like God has chosen to do that a week later than, than I wanted, than I prayed for. But there are crises that come in the life of the church. There are crises that, that the early church experienced out of nowhere, and it was a challenge. But after, the, and, and let me say this, during the crisis, the, the big question is, will the church survive? Whether it's a baby in utero, or a brand new relationship, or an airplane, you know this, an airplane taking off, the hardest part is the early stages. 
It's will it get up? Will it go? Will it make it? Will this life come to be? Will this thing, will this startup be a successful startup? The early stages are uh, tenuous and there's questions and it's why crises can be so problematic. I, I shared with you the first week of this series in Acts that uh, God chose to start the church around the mission of Jesus. Uh, we have churches in our day that say, well, we're a church. Let's find a mission. It was the opposite. Jesus had a, gave his people a mission, and because of that, the church was formed. But the question was, this little vagabond group of men and women, these fishermen and carpenters, and so many of them uneducated and unschooled and untrained and unprofessional, would they make it? Would they make it? Rome, one writer said, was too big to fail. The church, too early to tell. But now today, Rome is what we study in the history books. And the church is growing and thriving. I've shared this a couple weeks now, but we have a partnership in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, where we send money every month and we send teams and we are part of hard places fighting human sex trafficking at one of the epicenters. And Christianity today, I held it up one Sunday, it says, inside the heart of Cambodia, where the sex industry is crumbling and the church is thriving. Who would have thought it? And when God does a work, there is always hard times and hard places and the unexpected. And the question, will the church make it? Can you see a parallel to your own life? When you start out on something new and you feel like God has called you something that you're excited about. But bam, the first big obstacle comes. And in your heart, you question, am I going to make it? Is this endeavor worth it? Do I quit? The church experiences crises after crises, and there was the temptation to lose heart. But after the crises, there's a triumph. God shows up, and always, and I love this, He always surprises His people. I want to say today, because this is a great opportunity right from the story. But I want to say today, if you have God in a box, if He's a manageable deity in your life, if you have it as a formula, you've got it wrong. And over and over and over again, when God does His work, when men and women dream dreams and see visions, when there are signs and miracles, when there is awe and wonder, He surprises us time after time, and He does it His way. That's why I stood here at the sanctuary and I preached about Ananias and Sapphira and this, this strange and scary passage from Acts chapter 5. And, and I wrestled with this passage with you and I tried to give some insight. And then I just stood back and said, God really, really evidently cares about generosity and honesty. And it was a critical time. And he cares about it in every life, especially in the life of the leaders of his church. Especially in crucial Seasons and God surprises. There's a crisis, there's a triumph, and then there's advancement. The gospel's furthered, the church grows stronger. I just love that. It says over and over the church increased, it spread, it grew, and my favorite word of the, of the bunch, it multiplied. Multiplication is greater than addition, and Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, chose to multiply his church. Crisis, triumph, and expansion, the repeating cycle that's found in Acts. Over and over, every crisis that came, 
There was real tragedy. And though each crisis was different, there ended up being uh, dead leaders. There ended up being people who gave their lives, who were imprisoned, who, whose lives were taken. Imagine if you were in this very story in Acts 12. Like you see God doing a word, but it starts off by, you know, one of you lost one of your own. I mean, any organization, especially in its infancy, is built on a leader or a few leaders. And what happens when they stop dropping? When they start dropping? There's a crisis, and it looks like you're going to lose. You're, you're going to lose heart. And here we see over it, the part of the stories, a part of the other stories in Acts, crisis, triumph. Surprising triumph. And then the advancement. The passage that I want to call your attention to is Acts chapter 12 and verse 5. I emphasized it when I read all 17 verses, but it says that the church, while Peter was in prison, that they earnestly prayed to God on his behalf. That word earnestly is translated in some of your versions. If you open your Bible today, some translate it fervently. Others say that they prayed with all their heart. They prayed for Peter. And I, I said this in week two and three, but the church, they were marked by prayerfulness and they were marked by praying bold prayers. Bold prayers. Often we pray dumb prayers. Lord, be with me. Do you know that He's already promised to be with you? In fact, He's given you this promise. I'll quote the, the chapter in Hebrews 13, 5. He will never leave you or forsake you. You don't have to pray, Lord, be with me. He's got that. Lord, bless this food. You're eating a Baconator. You went through the Wendy's drive-thru and you're eating a Baconator and God's not going to bless that food. Go for the broccoli. It's got a pre-built blessing already in it, right? Lord, Lord, help me. Give, give, us, give, me, give me help on this test. And you're walking to class when you pray that prayer. And God's like, you're on your own, pal. You should have studied, right? You're driving. Lord, give us traveling mercies. And God wants you to put down the phone and stop texting and drive the speed limit and put your hands 10 and 2. Those are, let me just love you as your pastor, those are just dumb prayers. But you see in Acts, you see bold prayers. Bold prayers are for open doors. Bold prayers are for overcoming the enemy. I married a couple not long ago and the young man, the groom, had lost a figure in his life that he loves dearly. That he admires and many people in the and his family and the community admired him for good reason. But he had a battle with depression, a battle where he ended his life. And at the wedding rehearsal, this young man stood up and he, was, he had been loved on. He was sharing love. It was a great moment. And he, he challenged his friends. He challenged everybody in the room. Hey, Sid wants to get you. And I was in the back at the table. I was going to do like a closing prayer. And I was so proud for my brother to honor, to acknowledge the pain and to, to honor that life, but also to use it as a warning to say sin wants to get you and he's so right. Genesis 4, it describes sin as crouching at the door wanting to get you, wanting to have you. Peter from Acts chapter 12 said in 1 Peter chapter 5 that the enemy, and you do have an enemy, he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It's why when I talk to you about prayer today, I want to take some words from John Piper in Desiring God. And he says this. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie. 
for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the deep. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Isn't that good? I mean, he, he ends a sentence on a preposition. That just gets me. That just nails on a chalkboard, right? But, but otherwise, a great quote, a great idea. Are you on mission? Is your life devoted to something bigger than you? Do you believe in the good news of the gospel that it liberates and that it frees, that it enables and it empowers? And are you on mission to experience that and express that? Is it a walkie-talkie if you believe that and you sense that in your life and you're locked arms with others? If you're with other believers and you're together in one heart, your prayers will look different. God, help us to be overcomers. Help us to overcome the adversary that prayer that prowls about. Help us, Lord, open doors so that not that we can live a life of leisure, but so that we can take the gospel. That people can be free. That sin that so easily entangles can lose its grip. Is it a little intercom in your life? You have anybody in your family like that? Like, you know, when you get near the kitchen, they're on the couch because they've been on the couch a long time. They, 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 they like that couch. And when you get anywhere near the kitchen, like, hey, could you bring, who's in there? Could you bring me? Hey, would you, while you're there, would you bring me? Right, you know anybody like that? Are you like that? Maybe you're that person, right? Maybe that's your prayer life. God, I'm going to sit here. Bring me some stuff. Or is it, as my man John Piper says, is it a wartime walkie-talkie? I want to challenge you to move away from some dumb prayers and to pray bold prayers. That's what we learn from Acts. And it's what we learn in this story. Bold prayers. There's this passage, I, I think I've taught this almost every week, that Luke wrote Acts. I would want you to know that. Luke, the physician, wrote Acts. And Luke wrote Luke. And they're sort of hand in glove. There's a companion to, to Acts and to Luke. And the physician gives this account where Jesus told a parable. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 1, it says, He told them this parable so that they would pray, always pray, and not lose heart. Uh, Jesus, I want to be up front. I'm going to tell you this story. I'm going to tell you a story about a, a needy neighbor. And I'm going to tell you a story about a wearisome widow. And it's going to be about persistence. You're going to be, I'm going to tell you this story. You're going to be like, oh my goodness, they just stayed after. They just stayed after. That needy neighbor just kept knocking on the door. There was no Holiday Inn or Hilton or Weston or Marriott. And people just needed each other. There was this neighbor knocking on the door. He kept knocking. And families back then, they didn't have their own rooms. They just kind of all slept together. So if you woke up one, you woke up them all. But the guy kept knocking. The guy kept knocking. And Jesus made a point of that story and related it to prayer. And so the wearisome widow who pesters and pesters the judge. And it seems like Jesus is comparing God to an evil judge. That's almost blasphemous. But Jesus is God. He wouldn't do that. He's not comparing God to... Or say God is like an evil judge. In fact, look at the contrast. If an evil judge is able to grant this widow 
her request based on her persistence, how much more that good, good Father in heaven. I want you to pray so that you won't lose heart. Now here's the thing. If I were to stand up here today and said, hey, we're going to talk about prayer. It's likely that that would be one of the most challenging sermons I would preach. You say, really, preacher? Here's why. Because it's not likely that anybody in here is going to go, oh, I'm supposed to be talking to God. I didn't, I didn't know. I, I hadn't heard that. It's a challenging message to talk about prayer. Because we know that we should, but we're frustrated that we don't. And so, this morning, I have a question for you. What enables you more? What allows you to stay after it and to persist and to ask and seek and knock? Is it desire or is it discipline? Now some of you, you got some discipline. My oldest, for the better part of the year, hit the gym every day. Like he's gotten all ripped up. He walks in the living room with his shirt on and I got my 50-year-old dad bod and I just plead with him to put his shirt back on. He's disciplined. And discipline is such a good thing. Paul would tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, bodily exercise profits little. But godliness is profitable for all things because it impacts this life and the life to come. And while we can... Praise discipline while it's a good thing. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I buffet my body. Not buffet my body. I buffet my body. I beat it. I, I make it my slave. I want reason to direct and appetite to obey. I don't want to be, I don't want my God to be my lust and the appetite of my flesh. And so I discipline myself. I have systems and I have structure. But I will say to you today, while Jesus talked about knowing and believing and understanding, He talked most profoundly about hungering and thirsting. What is it that you desire? I say to you, while discipline is important, it's desire that's going to lead us. That hunger that thirst. So I just want to say this. I could have preached this sermon and put up some of those cute acronyms for prayer. I could have said ACTS. Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. But I think it does more harm than good. I think you know you ought to talk to God. I think you know you ought to express your heart. I think you know you ought to listen to Him. And while discipline is so important to me, it's a breakdown of desire. And so I just have a sense that some of you need to hear this. When, when you know that He loves you, when you see a Savior who says, come to me all you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, you know that He loves you, you're likely to come to Him. You ever lied to anybody? 
betrayed them, let them down? What do you do? What's your response when that happens? I'll tell you, avoidance. You, you avoid them. If they come to the 9.30 service, you're going to the 11. If they're doing the spin class, you're at yoga. If they're going to Primo's Lakeland, you're at Primo's Lake Harbor. Like you're going to do all you can to avoid them because you've let them down. You betrayed, you've lied, you've fallen short of their expectation. And I see a group of women and men in the first 30 years of the church that lived on mission. And while they were intentional and concerned about their times and places of prayer, I think they had this heart's desire of knowing that they're loved. They prayed earnestly because their heart was in it. But Jesus knows that our hearts are prone to wonder as the hymn writer talks about. And it's why he told us those stories in Luke 18. Why he nudges us to not lose hearts. Those years ago, in my moment of crowded loneliness, God took me to the words of the Apostle Paul, and some of you know these in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For we do not lose hearts. We don't lose our heart, even though the outward man is decaying, the inward man is being renewed day by day. And these trials that have come our way are just but momentary light afflictions. And they are achieving for us the eternal weight of glory. He closes it by saying, what is seen is temporal, and what is unseen is eternal. God and prayer, it's eternal. And can I say today, those of you who come today and you are weary and you're laboring and you're heavy laden and you have not been able to please the people in your family or your roommate or your spouse or yourself, the gospel says Jesus delights in you. And that heart so scarred by sin, so weighed down by the world, so ready to lose heart, He loves and He desires that. He desires 